0: All right, Proverbs 1, uh, 1 to 7, and then we're actually going to skip to all the way to chapter 9, verse 10. So if you want to kind of put your finger in a couple pages after that, we'll flip over to that one because our our focus is really going to be on verse 7 of chapter 1 and verse 10 of chapter 9. God's Word says this, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, To receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. And instruction, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the word of the Lord. Something that I uh, am, am privileged to be able to recognize is, and I think hopefully is a benefit to you coming to the 11 a.m. service, is that I get to preach through it at the nine, and I realize that this topic this morning is particularly heavy for us, and I hope that it is convicting in a good way, and is challenging to us so that we may grow in Christ's likeness and honor the Lord. Uh, a particular book that I wanted to recommend to you this morning that does a great job of explaining the beauty of the fear of the Lord that we have is a book called Rejoice and Tremble. If you come with us on, on Wednesday nights, I've recommended it quite a few times, uh, authored by Michael Reeves. Excellent uh, book. I actually listened to it on, if you have the Hoopla app, you can actually get it for free uh, through your lo- our local library here in Bullock County. So Rejoice and Tremble, want to recommend that for you a great study on the fear of the Lord. But we begin here, uh, this is important, we begin with the fear of the Lord because that is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. And as we investigate and search the truths of the book of Proverbs, this has to be the beginning. We can't skip into the topics that we're going to approach in the coming weeks without first addressing this concept, this idea of Uh, The fear of the Lord. And so what exactly is wisdom? I would say wisdom is this. Wisdom is the the practice of living life well. It's the practice of living life well. And everybody, I think, wants to live life well, don't you? Don't you want to lead a a life well lived? The topics that we're going to hit on, just so you know, ahead of time, they're going to vary from friendship to the The words that we speak to one another, uh, to the beauty of God's design for sex and marriage, uh, to money, uh, just to name a few that we'll be hitting on in the next six weeks. But in order to understand wise living or living life well, we must begin where the Bible begins, an often neglected idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of it all. We could spend weeks right, to understand this biblical concept, but I get One Sunday, about 40 to 45 minutes of your time to unpack the fear of the Lord. And so we're just going to kind of scratch the surface of this topic this morning, but I hope it's edifying to you. Now, some ground rules for this particular sermon and for this series in Proverbs. Do I have any baseball fans in the room? I know there's a few of you out there. I'm a huge baseball fan. I love the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they disappoint me each and every season. In baseball, unlike other sports... Uh, each park has unique features to it. In football, the football field's always a hundred yards long. In soccer, it's pretty much the, the same dimensions and the same rules wherever you go. But in baseball, each park has unique, as I said, uh, features. So, you know, if you think of Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox play, what's a unique feature at that ballpark? Someone yell it out, right? The Green Monster is a gigantic outfield wall because the outfield is really short. At Fenway Park, because there's an interstate that runs right behind it, and so people would be blasting home runs out of there even more so than they do. And so each park has its own unique ground rules that pertain to that particular ballpark. So here's a few, uh, for instance, uh, Tropicana Field is in is in Tampa Bay, Florida. It's where the Tampa Bay Rays play. They play in a dome because it's super hot in Florida. And at the top of that dome, there's catwalks that are suspended that help support the ceiling. And if you hit a towering fly ball that happens to hit the catwalk on the bottom part and it drops into play, the ball's in play. It's a live ball. If it hits uh, up at the upper part of the catwalk and it's in play, it's determined to be a home run if it hits the catwalk in foul territory it's a foul ball those are unique ground rules to Tropicana Field uh, a unique aspect of the Oakland Coliseum where the Oakland A's play is that it's a shared facility or one time was a shared facility a football and baseball field and so it has a huge infield foul area and so the Oakland A's something unique to their ground is that they when that they're built for pitching Okay? So that they can make, they can induce fly balls on the infield, and the infielders can run and catch those in the big foul territory. Another one, Wrigley Field, the very famous field, right? What's famous about Wrigley other than it's old? Is the outfield wall is covered in what? Ivy. If the ball's hit and it gets caught into the ivy, the unique ground rule at Wrigley Field is that the ball is dead and it's counted as a ground rule double. So the, the batter gets to go to second base and stand on second base, but there's, there's no more play once the ball gets caught in the ivy. So you get, there's different ground rules for different parks. And in much the same way, when we come to different books of the Bible, there's different ways that we approach those books. Proverbs is a book of wisdom with proverbial sayings. We're going to approach that book in a much different way than we would, say, a historical narrative in the Old Testament or the book of Psalms, which are our praises, or even the book of Revelation, which uh, gives us a vision of things that have happened in the past and could happen in the future. So there's different ways, different ground rules that we have uh, when we approach these different books of the Bible. And so one of the ground rules that we have uh, is that these are proverbial sayings that are given to us so that we may live life well okay they 're not if then promises okay they're they 're pretty normal if you follow them you 're probably going to live a life that 's that 's well lived but they 're not necessarily if if you do this, then this will happen types of promises rather in context, this is important they were given we know this is primarily the writing of a very wise king, what was his name? Solomon, right? And it's a writing to his sons, okay, the the heirs to the throne, so that they will uphold and lead their people in the covenant law, to uphold the covenant of God and to lead the nation well. That's really important. File that away as we get to the end of this sermon and talk about an amazing covenant-keeping king uh, as we conclude the sermon this morning. Keep this thought again in mind as we go through. Another uh, unique ground rule that we have as we approach Proverbs in the coming weeks is there's a lens that we're going to read Proverbs through. We are fortunate enough at this time in history, we are on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to read, amen, right? We're going to read Proverbs through the lens of the gospel and And my hope is not to just tack Jesus on to the end in a nice uh, package, but for you to be able to see him all throughout the teaching that uh, we have. And so how do we see Jesus in this saying and advice? All right, who's ready? You guys ready? Okay, let's go. All right, main idea. Here's our main idea. The gospel frees us from fear and its crippling effects. Now listen to this. And also gives us fear. The gospel frees us from fear and its crippling effects and also gives us fear. Give me a few moments. We're going to kind of open this up and understand a little bit. Both of these concepts are happening at the same time when we come to saving faith in Christ. Right, Our natural fears are viewed through our salvation in Jesus, the gospel. And, and the new fear is one of having a reverence or fear of God, first, through Christ, our fears, okay, when, when I'm meaning, uh, like, worldly fears, I'm meaning anxiety, things that we're afraid of, like, I'm terrified of, you guys are going to make fun of me, I don't like spiders, I'm not giving you my man card over that one, whoever said that over there, so in, in my home, my wife's the spider killer, okay, because I don't, I don't even want to come near them. Actually, a few weeks ago, at community group, I'm talking, and I could see it out of the corner of my eye. There was a spider crawling up the wall behind me, and Heidi's in our community group, and she came up with, with those, those hands that she's got, and just went. She about knocked my wall over. She killed that spider. I was thankful that I didn't have to do that, and that my community group didn't see me squeal. That's a true fear that I have, So, first through Christ, our fears, our anxiety, and worry must be cast aside. Listen to these clear statements. So, we have to reconcile these concepts this morning the fear of the Lord, and then our fear, the fears, kind of natural fears that we have within the world, because the Bible says, Often, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Listen to this, Isaiah forty-one ten. So we're going to kind of travel through all of Scripture here: Old Testament, uh, Gospel, and a New Testament letter. Fear not, for I am with you. That's important. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. That's the positive, right? I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's see what it says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them, what, be afraid, right? Don't be afraid. I give you peace. Paul, in Romans 8.15, "...for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into," what? "...fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry this title, Abba, Father." That's an intimate title that we get to call out to God. It's interesting that the beginning of knowledge or wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But the scriptures oftentimes command us what? Do not be afraid. Don't fear. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. And I believe Matthew 10, 28 actually summarizes this idea well for us. Jesus teaching his disciples says this in Matthew ten twenty-eight: And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Who's he talking about? People. He's talking about people. Man, don't be afraid of people. Don't be afraid of the world systems. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, here it is, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The context of Matthew 10 is instruction on on Christians enduring persecution or pushback against their faith in Christ. What Jesus is saying here is we have no fear of man because the one we truly fear is over all, the Lord. This is the tension of fear within our lives. We no longer have to fear the things of the world, right? Money problems, failures of sin, day-to-day issues in life, because the Lord is over those things. Saying again what uh, the Bible says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We don't have to fear the things of this world because the Lord is over those things. Now, okay, he is the one we fear. And yet, what do I even mean by this fear of the Lord that we speak of in Scripture? It's not a a shivering fear, right? When I was a little kid, this one might cost me my man card. When I was a little kid, I was afraid of the dark and I was afraid of monsters underneath the bed or in the closet. They were in one of those two places, And so what I would do in that fear is I would just pull the blankets over my head, right? That made everything better. Okay, that's not the fear, the kind of fear that we're talking about. But rather, the fear of the Lord is this. It's the reverent approach that we come to the Lord by. It's an understanding of this, that God is great. We humble ourselves before the Lord this is what it means to fear God. It is to begin to understand this, his absolute majesty, glory, and power in the face of our lack of those attributes. Ray Ortland, I think, says it very well in this quote. If you look to your notes, he says, we begin our journey into wisdom by revering the Lord with holy awe and we never grow beyond it. Fearing the Lord is never something that we grow out of. It's not a fear that we overcome because it's a healthy fear for our spiritual life. Because all true wisdom, Ortland says, is His alone. And and this awe of God is granted to us by His grace. That we are humbled before this holy God and realize our need of His righteousness for us. And so the first point that we're going to look at this morning is this. Is we're going to examine the loss of the fear of the Lord. The loss of the fear of the Lord. Again, if if we are to take hold this is God's word, we believe it to be true. We believe it to be useful for instructing us and correcting us and building us up in Christ's likeness. Verse 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? We can almost put a but here, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's the foolish way. The right way is to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, to fear him. Now, the, the easy pathway when I put out a point like the loss of the fear of the Lord is to, for us to condemn culture and say, they've lost the fear of the Lord. It's really easy when we sit and listen to a sermon to think about everybody else in the room that needs to hear that sermon, but I want to ask you this morning to listen for yourself, to listen for yourself for these instructions Again, we can, we can think of our society or our culture as we examine a tragic loss of the fear of God, and I believe that to be fair and obvious. I, I believe our culture is irreverent to God. They don't think about Him. They don't care about what God thinks. They don't even acknowledge Him. But that's the low-hanging fruit. That's easy. If we are to grow, we must examine ourselves. That's difficult to do, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard. If we are to take to heart that fearing God is the beginning of knowledge, right, we have to examine our lives and, I'm going to say this, our churches. Is the fear of God, this is the question we have to ask, is the fear of God evident in my daily life, in your daily life? Is the fear of God evident in our churches? I believe this is a, a serious issue among many of us, and I'm going to call it this. It's the issue of casual Christianity. About 10 years or so ago, I remember walking through the mall and seeing a a t-shirt hanging in the window of one of the stores. You guys ever see Spencer's Gifts? It's kind of a weird store in every single mall that no one ever goes into or buys anything from. There's a t-shirt hanging in the window of that particular store that says this phrase, Jesus is my homeboy. Okay? I didn't buy that one. And I would say that's, it kind of is the summary of, of just a casual approach to Christ. Okay, Jesus isn't our homeboy. Casual Christianity views Jesus or the Father as our homeboy in a sense, right? He's just hanging out with me. He's just tagging along, keeping tabs. And then when I need something, I'll invite Jesus in to help me out. But Jesus isn't our homeboy because the Bible says this, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We must not become complacent and casual with our faith or the practice of our faith. It is the most important part of your life, right? In fact, it shouldn't even be just a part, right? When we think of a part, we think of a pie, and we just kind of take a slice of it, and that thing's dedicated to it. Our faith should be over all of our life. It's the whole. And yet our faith, for, for some of us, is just so casual, It is just the part. It's It's the leftovers of time. It's the leftovers of money. It's the leftovers of our talent or spiritual gifts that God's given. I have this leftover. God, I'll give this to you. But if we truly fear God, meaning we approach Him with reverent awe and wonder, our faith should absolutely dominate every aspect of our life. We would... This is what we would do. We would take the good gifts the Lord has granted us and we would put them to use in the church and outside of our walls in our communities. We'd be eager to share of His goodness, love, grace, and mercy, right? But we can be so cavalier with our relationship with God and we understand from Scripture what happens when one becomes careless with the Lord or a people becomes careless With the Lord, and and they don't understand the weight of His glory and might, and the clarity of His instruction. I want to share a story with you from Second Samuel chapter six, verses six to seven. Here's the context: the the Israelites have taken the ark back. It's been captured, I believe, by this time by the Philistines, and they're bringing it back, and they're traveling, and they're rejoicing together. Now we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 6, 6 6-7. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Oh my goodness, right? What is going on here? This incident, whenever I read this passage, it always catches me off guard. When I like the guy's just trying to steady the ark, and he dies. Just trying to make sure it didn't fall. But here, what's the issue? What is the Lord teaching us in this passage? The greater issue is a is a collective loss of the fear of God and reverence towards his commands. Let me tell you why. The Israelites have been told numerous times how the ark was to be transported. Who's transporting the ark in this passage? You notice what it was? Oxen. But the word of God says it was to be carried by priests with poles. It was designed to be carried by God's people. But here it's transported by oxen, which eventually, what happens? They stumble. Uzzah seems to do a noble thing when he tries to secure the ark, and yet the instructions were for their safety, right? Don't touch this. It's like if if people handling radioactive materials, they have protocols on how they're supposed to handle them. God's so good to us and gracious that he says, this is how you handle this thing. Handle it with care, because if you touch it, you're going to die. That's what happened. And this display of God's anger towards disobedience was for all the nation to see. It didn't just happen in private. Everybody saw what happened to this man that reached out and touched the ark. And hopefully, they all learned a lesson that day. We need to listen to the word of God and we need to obey it. Handle with care. Don't, here, I'll just say it this way don't mess with God. Or his instructions, God is holy. He is to be feared. He is to be revered. And we've lost that among so many people in the church today. We're just so casual with God. And so two takeaways here in this first point. This, this is important. We have to stop twisting the word of God where it is clear. Where God's word is very clear, we want to be very clear. We, we try so hard. We go, well, if I go into the Greek and then I use this word, or I go into the Hebrew and I... Stop twisting the word of God. It costs this man his life. Here's another thing that we can take away. Stop overemphasizing certain attributes of God over and above others. What's one that comes to mind that we really emphasize? Love, the love of God, and we should. It's amazing. We're saved by grace. We're here because of God's love, his great love for us. We want to talk about that so much, but we can't neglect all of the other attributes that are God. God is so perfect that he upholds each and every characteristic that he exhibits, every attribute. He can do it perfectly. So he can be both perfectly loving and wrathful And we can't neglect. We can't elevate love over and against his wrath, justice, and righteousness. Fear the Lord for who he is. God says, I am who I am. Number two, we see in the fear of the Lord, legacy living. I'll say also right living, wise living begins with the fear of the Lord. We're going to look at some examples Legacy living begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10. So let me, let me tell you this. The first nine chapters of Proverbs are kind of, they're one unit together, and they're bookended with this statement on the fear of the Lord at the beginning and at the end. So this section ends with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Legacy living begins with the fear of the Lord. Every great man and woman of Scripture feared God because fearing the Lord is the beginning of right living, knowledge, and wisdom. Simply put, here, here's the knowledge that we receive. It's a saving knowledge when we fear God. Salvation begins with fearing God. This is the greatest knowledge we can obtain in life. It's the saving love of God, and we only can understand this when we embrace, acknowledge, take hold of the greatness of God, how great He is, how majestic He is, how righteous He is, how holy He is, how perfect He is. And I think this is made known first before we get into some examples from Scripture. Often in my life, in my experience, some of the most faithful Christians I've met, they're just simple folk. Just simple people who love God and they love His Word and they take Him at His Word. They may not study the Greek or the Hebrew text. They may not have a fully formed eschatology or soteriology or ecclesiology or whatever ology you want to throw out there. But they have this in common. They fear the Lord. They know the Lord. They take Him and His Word seriously. I found an example of that a couple weeks ago. One of our beloved widows has been dealing with a a number of health problems and has been away from us for, oh man, probably six to eight weeks, homesick. And so I called to encourage her, and as often happens, she encouraged me. And this this woman is incredible. She's one of the kindest people that I know at our church, the most loving, the most encouraging, soft-spoken, gives the best hugs. And we're talking... And I said, "You know, what can we do for you? And she said, just pray for me. I just can't believe. <laughs> this is such good advice. She goes, I just can't believe that God loves a filthy sinner like me. This is one of the godliest people I know. Kind, gentle, encouraging. What does she call herself? How did she come to that conclusion? She knows God. She knows how big he is. She knows God deeply. These are legacy believers, and we can gain so much wisdom, knowledge, and right living from them. Young people, get around some older, mature folks who love Jesus and learn. We see great men of Scripture begin with the fear of the Lord, reverence for God. Think about it. Think about Moses. What happened when, when Moses came to that burning bush, when he realized that it was God in that bush, Moses hid his face, took off his sandals. Moses, the man who would later converse with God on a mountain, mediated for God's people, the power of God resting on him. Have you ever been able to lift a staff and part water? No. Moses did with, through the power of God. This man, when confronted with the holiness of God, what, what did he do? He fell face down and hit his face. Do we approach God in the same manner? Or is it just like casual Friday all the time, right? When I was in retail, we had casual Friday. Is it just casual Friday with God all the time? Isaiah, a great prophet of the Old Testament I love Isaiah chapter 6. It's such an amazing chapter. When he's brought into the throne room of God, I think it's a vision. He's not physically brought. it. It says a vision of Isaiah. So it's just a vision of the throne room of God, of being in God's presence. Isaiah says these three words in our English translation. He says, Woe is me. Even in that situation, in that, in that vision, there's seraphim. These are glorious beings created by God. Even the seraphim, these glorious beings, it says they, they hid their face from the holiness of God. Even the angels look away a little bit. When Saul of the, of the New Testament was on his way breathing out murderous threats against the church was confronted with the light of Jesus, Saul, who would later be named Paul, fell to the ground in the light of our resurrected king. He was thrust to the ground by the power and might of our resurrected Savior. He was blinded by God and brought to a humbling place to revere the Lord. It reminds me of this quote from John Flavel, a Puritan. He says, faith is fertilized by the fear of God. I love that. All these men are are regarded as men of great faith, and their faith grew. It it was fertilized because they feared the Lord. They had great reverence for God, His Word, and His power. Lastly, the greatest God-fearing legacy of Scripture is not Moses or Isaiah or Paul or you or me. It's the model of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Jesus models for us an incredible fear of the Lord. The Word of God, in fact, actually foretells of this, this fear of God that the one coming would have. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 2, the Bible says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was baptized? What came down? The Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus and remained with Jesus. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, right? We have much to learn from Jesus. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge, and hear this, underline this if you want. And what? The fear of the Lord. Jesus, in his humanity, feared the Lord God. Jesus knew his purpose and plan, and in great reverence and awe, he fully obeyed. His fear of the Lord was evident in this, obedience. Jesus was fully obedient to the word of God, that not one iota of the law was cast aside. He lived it perfectly. Just as Solomon penned most of the wisdom writings of Scripture, Proverbs included, and the intent was for his own sons to be able to uphold the covenant of God. Hear this, they all failed miserably. We have all failed miserably to live up to God's standards and expectations to His law. Solomon's sons, in fact, they they cast aside the wisdom of God the fear of the lord and they sought out the supposed safety of the world they divided god's people the kingdom of god was divided into two god hates divisiveness they aligned themselves with foreign powers right because god just wasn't powerful enough for them they needed to go find other kings to help them out they disregarded the promises of god the justice of God, the mercy of God, and righteousness, and they trampled his word underfoot. But in the words of Paul in Galatians 6-7, God will not be mocked. So God, what did he do? This is the gospel. In his loving kindness, sent forth a righteous king on our behalf. One that could and has upheld the covenant. He's our covenant-keeping Savior. Remember, God has many attributes that he upholds. To prove his love, mercy, kindness, and grace, he sent himself Jesus in the flesh. To not cast aside one aspect of his character, righteousness and wrath we see in the life of Christ. Now we see the collision of righteousness and wrath collide at the death of Christ at the cross. And Jesus lived, he did this. He lived in the fear of the Lord for us. So he has saved us from our casual attitude towards the Lord. And he lived in the fear of the Lord as an example to us. His fear of the Lord culminates, I think, most beautifully in a time in a garden where he's confronted with, in a sense, a decision, a conundrum. Jesus knew what was coming, he knew the plan. He knew that death faced him, and it wasn't just any ordinary, ordinary death. It was the worst death of all time, a gruesome death. And in the garden, he cried out to his father, and we find this the fear of the Lord here in this moment, Matthew 26, 39. The Bible says, "In going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You hear the, the anguish in his soul. One of, the, one of the descriptions of the passages of this moment was the, Jesus was sweating drops of blood. He was so distressed. Then he says these words. We see this, the fear of the Lord captured right here. Nevertheless, not as I will, what, but as you God, I will carry out your plan, even unto death. And so we have in Jesus Christ the perfect king who came in his loving kindness in our place. He lived perfectly in our place. He died in our place But the beauty of it all is that he didn't stay dead. He raised up conquering sin and death. That we may take hold of this free gift of grace that he has given us through faith. That we may fear the Lord as he fears the Lord. That we may humble ourselves before God Almighty. And receive King Jesus as our Savior I want to read this passage came to mind this morning. I want to read this as we can see kind of the two positions that may be in this room because there's, there's one side in here right now that you don't have faith in Christ. And the most loving thing I could say to you this morning is if, if you haven't entrusted your life to Jesus, you should be afraid of God. But if you do have Christ, we have nothing to fear in this present life other than to have humble reverence for God. So what do I do? If, I, if I'm apart from Christ, it's, it's simple. We place our confidence, our trust, trust in the finished work of Jesus. This is what happens. I want to share this last thing with you, and then we'll the band will come forward. Just, just one more thing. Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. I'm just, I'm just going to read it straight through. The author of Hebrews encourages us in this way. He says, For you've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay. so apart from Jesus, that's where we are. We tremble with fear in the face of God. But, there's a but here in verse 22... But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, hear this, the mediator of a new covenant and a sprinkled, and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less Will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God, hear this, acceptable worship with, here's the word, reverence and awe fear of the Lord. For our God is a consuming fire. The choice is yours. Place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus and be reconciled to God or one day, if you are apart from Christ, you will stand before God, the judge, and you will be judged according to your own good works and they will never measure up to his perfection. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen.